Good evening and welcome to Rare Book School. This is lecture number 455 in a continuing series, which began when our speaker uh, was much younger. <laughs> our speaker is William Noel, the curator of manuscripts and rare books at the Walters Art Museum. He speaks tonight on the uh, celebrated Archimedes Palimpsest, which is, I believe, still in Baltimore, uh, although not forever. William Noel. Thank you very much, Terry. It's a great pleasure to be here. I hold in my hand a reproduction of the uh, New York Times for Tuesday, July 16th, uh, 1907. It was rather an interesting, rather an interesting day in the world, actually. There was a boat rocker arrested in Trenton. <laughs> Robert Davis, a pole, was under arrest here, uh, charged with manslaughter and robbery. He was one of a party of eight poles thrown into the Delaware River by capsizing with their boat last night. Tony Kukowski was drowned. The survivors asserted that Davis caused the upset by rocking the boat, and they allegedly robbed them while they were struggling in the water. I don't know what happened to, uh, to St. Robert Davis. On the same day, Tolstoy's death is rumored, uh, a rumor that unfortunately turned out to be true. Um, there's a tortured coachman here. Um, Robert slit his tongue and pounded his feet, but failed to get the keys from his employer. All sorts of things go, will go on on uh, July 16th of 1907. But the main headline is that there's a big literary find in Constantinople. The Savile discovers books by Archimedes copied about 900 AD. It opens a big field. Copenhagen, July 15th. Johann Ludwig Heiberg, professor of philology in the University of Copenhagen, made a most interesting discovery in the convent of the Holy Grave at Constantinople a few weeks ago. While studying, studying old manuscripts in the convent, he discovered a number of palimpsests which, in addition to prayers and psalms of the 12th century, included works by Archimedes. The Archimedes manuscript was a copy made about the year 900 by a monk and later conveyed to Constantinople. The Turkish authorities did not permit Professor Heiberg to remove the manuscript. He was permitted, however, to make a copy of it, and this will shortly be published. And it goes on, it's the whole column. Heiberg did, indeed, uh, go on to publish his manuscript. And Heiberg, if you are a, if you are, um, a Greek philologist and you study Greek philology, if Heiberg has done something, it's been done. It's been done. Um, so, surely some mistake, A. Uh, this is June the 17th, 2001. The Eureka page, the front of the Sunday Times magazine in England, colour supplement. It's just a few lines of scrawled Greek text, but new technology has identified the hand of Archimedes, and the results are rewriting history. Now, I don't need to tell the manuscript people here that it's most unlikely that we really identified the hand of Archimedes. <laughs> um, but what's really extraordinary is, even given my partial propaganda, that this should be the same... This is, this is about the same manuscript. This is about the same manuscript. Now, normally when you see the word Eureka written in a, in a margin, you, don't, you, you get an exclamation mark. Uh, in my talk, it's a question mark. There are two reasons for this question mark. 
The first is that I actually went in search of this manuscript, and the honest answer to that is, don't ask for what you want, you just might get it. I'm not at all sure that I should have got this book. But the second is really a more, more important question, which is, which is, you know, is, is this book all it's cracked up to be? And even if it is, um, even if it is, how much more are we going to get out of it than a fabulous scholar got out of it in 1906? And that's really what I'm going to talk about uh, tonight. So... Method of mechanical theorems. 
in which Archimedes actually does seem to use mechanical, physical principles to, to elucidate um, abstract mathematical concepts, which is kind of cool. Um, and it's the only surviving copy in the world of another treatise by Archimedes called the Stomachion, uh, which is a sort of light-hearted light pangraph game, which is used to illustrate certain principles. And its discovery made front page news in the New York Times in 1906, and it is, this is it, this is, this is the, one of the three books for which we can be grateful for the survival of any of Archimedes' treaties, and it's, and it's still with us, uh, just, still with us, just. Uh, that's what it looks like, and uh, I'll explain this in more detail later, um, but I mean, yeah, it really doesn't look in great shape. Um, and uh, the Archimedes text isn't what you see here. The Archimedes text is running in two columns this way, um, which is a, which is a scary a scary thought. Now, the manuscript was sold on the twenty eighth of October, nineteen ninety eight, at Christie's, New York. Uh, for two million, with the buyer's premium, that's two point two million dollars. Um, it probably would have been more, but the day before the sale, the Greek government decided that it was stolen and put in a court order to Christie's that, that the manuscript was stolen. They had no right to sell it, and this probably put off a number of institutions from wanting to buy it. Uh, it was actually bought by a private American uh, collector, and I think 2.2 million was probably a steal. Um, not that the book's stolen, you understand. But <laughs> <laughs> um, and I don't know how many of you know the director of the Walters Art Museum in Baltimore. He's called Gary Deacon, and he's a Byzantinist. And just in the course of my proceedings as a curator of manuscripts at the Walters Art Museum, I mentioned to him that, you know, this rather interesting book had just been sold. And so he told me, why don't I just find, find, it, find out who, 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 who bought it? And see if he'll lend it to us for an exhibition. And I emailed him back and said, you don't understand. This book is not fit for exhibition. It's not fit for. It's not fit for anything. We're an art museum, and we can't possibly show a book like this. And I attached a JPEG that said, "Look, you don't want to exhibit this thing." And he wrote back and he said, "Not worth much work, but do it anyway." Now, an awful lot of people, of course, wanted to know who the owner was, and I didn't have any more idea than any of them. Um, but it landed on my desk, and this is this is how. Um, I had purchased from Sam Fogg, who's a rare, rare manuscript dealer, I think probably known to many of the people in this room. I had purchased an Ethiopian gospel book uh, from him uh, a few months earlier. And when he came to deliver the book, he told me that there was a collector he knew who he thought would be in need of help from an institution, uh, which is a rather interesting term. And, um, and, um, and, uh, and, uh, but he wouldn't tell me who the man's name was, and I didn't think much of it. Um, and it wasn't Sam Fogg who 
who, whose name was attached to the, to the Archimedes Palimpsest after a after uh, after the sale. And the, the, the dealer who bought the book on behalf of the owner was somebody called Simon Finch, whose name I actually didn't know from Adam, but 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 m many of you will because I think because he's he, he's he's not a manuscript person. He pr pr principally he's a printed book person, um, and I'm a manuscript person. Um, and I found his email address off the web. I didn't even know where he lived. I mean, he's simon.finch at rarebooks.com. <laughs> Dear Mr. Finch, I am the manuscript curator at the Walters Art Gallery, Baltimore. The Walters has 850 medieval manuscripts, 1,300 incunables, and another 1,500 books printed after 1,500. Most of these books are illustrated, and most of them were collected by Henry Walters between about 1895 and 1928. We normally have a regular display of manuscript material. Our biggest show in recent years has been Time Sanctified, the book of hours in medieval life and thought, with a catalogue by Roger Wick. More such shows are forthcoming following, ex following an extensive renova renovation programme that will be completed by the fall of 2001. We have an active acquisitions program, although our funding is limited. We have, for example, recently purchased a deluxe 16th century Ethiopian manuscript from Sam Fogg. In general terms, therefore, I would be most interested in receiving your catalogues and would be grateful if you would add me to your mailing list. However, I do have a more specific reason for writing. <laughs> The director of the Walters, Dr. Gary Vikan, is a specialist in Greek material and was fascinated, as am I, by the Archimedes palimpsest. Dr. Vikan wondered if there would be any possibility of displaying the manuscript at the Walters for a short period of time. I do not know whether the purchaser of the volume would be at all interested in the idea, but if you think he might be, I would be most grateful to you if you could pass on the suggestion. The Walters does have an active exhibition program. We are currently putting on a show of works from the Vatican, Monet came earlier in the year, and the arts of Georgia are coming in 1999. They never actually came, but there we go. If the, owner of the if the owner of the palimpsest were interested in putting the manuscript on view, he might consider that the Walters would be an appropriate place. Please excuse this cold call. It is just a thought, but from our point of view, an exciting one, given the extraordinary cultural importance of the Codex. Whatever you think of this, I would, as I say, look forward to, receive, to hearing from you and to receiving your catalogues. With many thanks for your time, William Knoll, Curator of Manuscripts and Rare Books. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Send. And I forgot about it. I mean, of course, you know, you just, just forget about it. You just, you just blind copy your director and you forget about it. <laughs> and three days later, I walked into the office and powered up the computer. You know, uh, email from Sam Fogg. Dear Will, I am writing with reference to your letter to Simon Finch on the subject of the palimpsest. The buyer of the palimpsest is the client who I briefly discussed with you when I was in Baltimore. I think he is very sympathetic to the idea of sending the Archimedes. I have already suggested to him that we visit the museum in January. Perhaps we could discuss this and the Archimedes on the telephone soon. Best wishes, Sam. So to cut a long story short, I got onto the telephone soon, and about three weeks later, the, uh, Sam came round with the owner, and um, he just left it with me. <laughs> <laughs>
it just said, you know, he left it with me. Um, and, and, and he left me with this. I, I had absolutely no idea what to do. Um, none. Uh, I didn't know about Archimedes. I remember thinking that he was born in Samos, uh, which he was. Um, you know, uh, I can't add. I'm an expert in Anglo-Saxon manuscripts of the likes of the Gospel Book of Judith and Flanders. That those of you that those of you that were in Roger Wick's class this afternoon saw it. It's, it's a beautiful book. It's a lovely book. It's the sort of book you want to spend time with. And I was stuck with this thing. And all I knew was that the owner thought it would be a good idea to put it on exhibition. Okay, so you've got to put this thing on exhibition. I ask you, you can't even see, you can't even see the Archimedes text. It's not there. Um, Helen Damnation, what do you do? And I thought, wow, you know, take a good example take a good lesson from the Christian liturgy. You can't see the body and blood of Jesus Christ. You can't actually see it. So we'll make a church service now. We'll put the book on an altar and we'll make a movie. And, and that's what I did. That's what I did. Only we had to do it very, very quickly. We had to, we had to, we had to put together the whole exhibition in about four months. We, the, the book arrived on my desk on July, on January the 17th. 1999, and the exhibition opened on June the 19th of that year. And those of you that have put on exhibitions know that I will never pull off a faster feat in my life uh, than, put, than putting this exhibition on. But um, and uh, what I did essentially was to tell was to tell the story of the palimpsest, which I will which I will do very very well now. I wrote myself a ticket to all those wonderful places in Europe that you that you really wanted to go to. Um, so I found Sicily on the map after I found out that Archimedes was born in Syracuse in, in Sicily. And I went, went to Sicily. Um, and Sicily, Sicily, Sicily is a wonderful, wonderful place. Archimedes was born in the 3rd century BC. Um, and uh, the king at the time was a chap called Hiero II. And this is a picture of Hiero II. And this is presumably his gold crown that Archimedes had to, had to find out whether it was made of pure gold or not without destroying. Um, it, is, it is very Greek and very beautiful, Syracuse, and a lot of it still remains. This is the amphitheater, um, and there are inscriptions around here, uh, including, the names of the, including the name of Pyro II, which is, you know, this is script from when Archimedes was alive in about, in a, in about, in about uh, 220 B.C., um, it was a Greek, it was a Greek, Greek colony. Um, it was, it was not a good idea to be in, in Syracuse in 214 BC, uh, because the Second Punic War was going on, and you had to decide whether you were going to side with Carthage, or you were going to side with, to side with Rome. Um, Hiro II decided to side with Carthage. Bad move. Um, because after Scipio Africanus had dealt dealt with Hannibal at the Battle of Zama, um, you know, you were, you were toast. Um, Archimedes really does seem to have played an important part in the, defense of the, in, in the defense of the city, and these were parts of the wonderful, wonderful defensive works around Syracuse. I can't tell you, you know, 
a man is about that high walking through that. I mean, they're very, very impressive, and the walls of Syracuse still still survive. Um, so we filmed all this, and and, 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 and and it was great fun. And then I made the point that in 214 BC, Archimedes was 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 finally giving up and wondering about some abstract mathematical problem. Uh, when a Roman soldier came came and wanted to take him to the Roman general Marcellus, and Archimedes didn't pay him enough attention, so he cut his head off. End of Archimedes. Um, and uh, and that was that, really. Um, how do we get from this event in 214 BC to, to, to this book? Archimedes did or do all sorts of wonderful things in his life. I mean, it, we do, you can actually build up a character study of Archimedes. Um, but whatever, whatever, whatever he did, uh, what he's really famous for, and justly so, are ten treaties of truly astonishing mathematical brilliance. Uh, if you think of other 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 mathematicians, you, you know you can think of Euclid uh, and his elements of geometry. Now, uh, it was never a problem in the Middle Ages getting hold of getting hold of Euclid. Uh, to be a good Christian, you had to know your Euclid. Archimedes is not like this. Archimedes is not the shortest distance between any two points of a straight line. It's not. It's not all the same thing. This is. This is really high-end math. This is on the edge of, of calculus, on the edge of concepts of infinity. It's not the sort of thing that you, that, that, that you need for any practical purposes. And copies of Archimedes were probably always extremely scarce. Um, he, um, and he wrote them to his learned friends in Alexandria, but I think they were probably always extremely scarce. They were never very common. And we're very, very lucky that he survived at all. When I was making my movie, I found that one of the few nice logical linking places... Now, I need to go back. Um, is this. This is, this is Constantinople. This is where the Archimedes manuscript was made. And this, of course, is the church of Hagia Sophia, which was in part built by Isidore of Miletus in the 6th century during the reign of Justinian. And Isidore of Miletus had actually read one of the treaties of Archimedes, he'd read on the sphere, of, sphere and the cylinder, and Hagia Sophia is made up of sphere and cylinder, so, so, so that was nice. Anyway, it was in Constantinople, uh, about the year 1000, that, um, that the Archimedes manuscript was, was, was written, the one that survives, Codex C. Um, Life in Constantinople in, one, in, in the year 1000 was, was really very good. It was a very sophisticated uh, court culture, remnants of which still survive. This is the Imperial Palace, which had a flourishing scriptorium, and the Archimedes manuscript might have been written there, um, or possibly as a monastery, like the Monastery of St. John Studios, which is about four or five miles away, but still within the city walls. Uh, it was a time of high culture and high art, exactly perhaps the only place in the year 1000 that Archimedes could have begun to have been appreciated. And originally, the Archimedes manuscript was rather a fine book. It wasn't as fine as this. This is a manuscript at the Walters Art Museum, um, Walters 521, the Menologion of Michael IV, which was written in about 1034, about the same time as the Archimedes manuscript. You take away the picture, this is the same slide, you take away the picture of this saint sent, 
saint. And you'll get a rather good idea of what the Archimedes manuscript originally looked like. It was, it was rather a big manuscript and laid out in two columns with, with, with generous margins. And instead of pictures, you can, you can, imagine, you can imagine diagrams. Uh, how do we end up with what we have, which is this pile of dreck? Uh, this is this is this is this is this is the sad tale, really. Uh, you move from you move from the year one thousand to the year twelve o four, when uh, Crusaders on the on, on, on the fourth Crusade decide to 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 stop short of Jerusalem, which they're trying to save, and sack Christian Constantinople instead. And uh, when you think in terms of the transmission of the ancient classics, and you think of great tragedies, you can think of the Library of Alexandria, and you can think of 1453 when the Turks sacked Constantinople. Not, none of those dates, are, n neither of them is as important as 1204, and what us wretched Latins did in 1204. The number of texts that you know survived until 1204 and didn't survive afterwards is, is truly, truly astonishing. This is just a, uh, an illumination from, uh, from the, one of the Walter's two copies of William of Tyre's History of the Crusades to illustrate the point. Now, of course, what you want to do uh, at a time of, of cultural crisis like this is not read Archimedean math in a bath. What you want to do is to save your soul. And what you want to do um, is, and what you need for that is books. And there's always a recurring demand for liturgical books. The trouble is that in such a world, then getting parchment can be very difficult. So you reuse parchment of books that you don't think are necessary anymore. Archimedes wasn't necessary, so they recycled the parchment. Uh, they disbound the book, took it apart, they scraped off the Archimedes text. Uh, they cut the open sheets in half, stacked them in a corner. And actually, they stacked them in a corner together with some other manuscripts that we haven't yet identified that exist now in this manuscript stacked in the corner, shuffled them. They rotated them 90 degrees, so you make a book literally half the size. I, don't, uh, I think that you guys are probably well, well, well capable of understanding this, but if you, wrote, if you cut something like this in half and rotate it 90 degrees, you get a book half the size. You refold it, and you fold it up, and you get a book half the size, which is a prayer book, and now the Archimedes text is running through the gutter of the manuscript across the other side in two columns, like that. And the Archimedes manuscript, the Archimedes text essentially essentially disappears. What happened to it between 1204 and 1906? I couldn't believe it when I found out because it really improved my talk. This is... Um, <laughs> This is very cool. This is the monastery of Mar Saba in the Judean desert. Uh, it's not far from Qumran, actually. It's about halfway between Bethlehem and the Dead Sea. It's a beautiful, beautiful place. <coughs> and we know from an ex-Libris that was there in 1899 when the book was catalogued, but has disappeared since, that there's a 16th century ex-Libris inscription from the monastery of Mar Saba, which was, which was really flourishing. Um, uh, uh, from about the 5th century uh, through, through the 19th. 
And um, this is this is just in the entire. This is where the this is where the library is in this building, and it takes up the whole of this valley. But there are also cells for monks hidden in hidden in hidden in. It's a beautiful, beautiful, very very quiet quiet place. Um, and uh, we found out we found the, the fact that the. Um, the, the manuscripts are kept in, 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 in that tower is oral tradition provided by this guy who's called Brother Lazarus. Brother Lazarus is the only English speaker in the, in the monastery which still flourishes. Um, he came from San Francisco. He was a hippie. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, a remarkable guy. He's been in the monastery about 20 years and he's found, he really has found peace. Um, and he showed us, around, showed us around the monastery. You can only get in if you're a bloke. Um, he showed us around the monastery and uh, had a wonderful sense of humour about what it was like to live there. He was genuinely had found peace, but I don't know if you've ever been to Greek Orthodox monasteries, but they have this metal thing that they bang and they get this wonderful rhythm out of it. And he was saying, well, you know, he's learned to love it. It's not quite the Grateful Dead, he said, but, but, <laughs> but, 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 he's, but he's learned to love it. He was a charming, charming guy. Um, and... Uh, and this is this is Robertson Crowley. Many of you will know Robertson Robertson Robertson's views of the Holy Land. Uh, this is what they made of Mar Saba in about 1840. Um, it, it's a it's a stunning it's a stunning stunning place. And um, about 1840, the manuscripts in Mar Saba and in surrounding areas were. Um, because of political instability, which unfortunately still continues, uh, were pulled together and taken to the uh, library of the Greek Patriarch in Jerusalem. Uh, the Greek Patriarch in Jerusalem... Sorry, I'm the wrong way around. He's a stone's throw away from the... Literally a stone's throw away from the Holy Sepulchre, and that might be why, by 1846, our manuscript is in the Metochion, or daughter house of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, one of the daughter houses of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem, but th this daughter house is in Constantinople. And relations between the Metochion and the Holy Sepulchre itself, the mother house, is still very, very strong. Indeed, when we went to Constantinople, uh, we couldn't get into the Metochion because all the monks had gone to... Uh, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre to celebrate Easter, so this is taken from over the walls. Um, how do we know that the manuscript was at the Metochion of the Holy Sepulchre? Amazing. Amazing. Uh, Tischendorf, the guy who had very strange relations with the monks of, of uh, St. Catherine's on Mount Sinai and is responsible for the fact that the Codex Sinaiaticus, the earliest surviving copy of the New Testament, is now in the British Library. He, uh, he, he wrote of his travels to the Orient in 1846, and he says that he went to the Metochion of the Holy Sepulchre, and he found nothing of interest at all, except a palimpsest dealing with mathematics. And he publishes this. He actually published it in his book. He doesn't say what he did with this, but we know that he nicked a leaf from it. And, 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 and this is that leaf. Uh, it has the 
in Aztashelf at 1879.23. This is a Cambridge University Library shelf mark uh, because about 43 manuscripts from Tischendorf's estate were sold to Cambridge University Library in 1873, I mean 1879, and this is and this is and this is the 23rd of them. It wasn't actually identified as a leaf from the Archimedes palimpsest. Uh, until 1968, when Nigel Wilson identified it as such. In 1899, uh, the manuscripts of the Metochion were catalogued by Papadopoulos Karameus, uh, saying, that, saying that it was a palimpsest with mathematical subject matter, and that was enough to get Johann Ludwig Heiberg, who was professor of philology at Copenhagen, to come to the um, Metochion and study it. Wow, this is what it is. It's a new Archimedes manuscript, two new treaties, and on floating bodies in the original Greek. And he published on it, and he'd already done one critical edition of Archimedes and had to completely redo it when he found a new manuscript. I mean, on the one hand, a nightmare, and on the other hand, a great, a great, a great of scholarly endurance to reproduce an entire new critical edition. Uh, and this is an image of the publication in which he did it. Okay. Um, if Heiberg's done it, uh, why are we still interested in it? All the more so, since, since Heiberg's time, the manuscript has suffered appalling uh, really disgusting, just disgusting damage. We don't know how the manuscript left the Metochion of the Holy Sepulchre. We don't know how it did. And I know quite a bit, but I'm not yet sure enough of it to talk about it in public. Um, when the book was sold at Sotheby's, I mean at Christie's, they said that four forgeries had been added to the book and that this was undoubtedly done by the monks of the Metochion because they wanted to sell the, sell the manuscript for money uh, and they'd done this uh, around, around 1918. And their other part of the story was that it was in France by the, the early 1920s. Um, it is a forgery. This is this is this is this is what it's forged from. You just want to concentrate on the figure and on this figure here and on there. Take away the backgrounds and it's, and, it, and you can trace it you can trace it one to one. And uh oh. And here's and here's another one. Um, now, the interesting thing about this is that it was forged from this. And this, this great publication, actually, is Henri Aumont's Manuscrit Grec on the Bibliothèque Nationale, Part 7, which was published in 1929. This means that this can't have been forged until after 1929. And if you're a monk in a Metochion with lots of illuminated gospel books, you don't copy 
from a book published in Paris in 1929 containing, you know, reproductions of gospel books, because you've got plenty of your own. You don't even have a copy of Henri Aumont. You know, no way, you've got the real thing. So this was done probably in Paris. These were forgeries done in Paris. Our problem, if it's important, and I'll have to demonstrate to you that it's important later on, our problem here is that we've now got gold ground forgeries on top of a 12th century prayer book, on top of Archimedes' text, that we've still got to read. if Heiberg hasn't done it already. The other thing that's happened since 1929 is that the manuscript has been liberally bathed in the River Seine. There aren't many things that can harm manuscripts, really. Uh, there's fire and there's water. And uh, this, this manuscript suffered very, very badly from mold. I like to think of this as a cross-section of Archimedes' brain. <laughs> but it's suffering from bovine spongiform encephalopathy. Uh, it's just, it's, 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 really, it's, really, it's really just being eaten, eaten away. Uh, it's, not, it's really not funny. Now, if you love books, this is tragic. And if you're at all a humanist, then the notion that this has been happening to... Heiberg's Codex C, and that you knew this, this is sick. The question is, is it important? Heiberg, and I'm going to have a real problem, we're going to have a real problem, I think, with this. Heiberg didn't do all that much work in Constantinople. He was only there for a couple of weeks. He did a rough transcription, decided what he wanted, and he got photographs. And he got the he got a local photographer, and he says all this. He got a lo local photographer in Constantinople to take photographs and send and send them to him. And he says he worked from photographs, so he largely worked from photographs back in back in Copenhagen. Now, because the Archimedes palimpsest has been has been very difficult for scholars to study uh, over the last 60 years because it's been in a private collection in France, you'd have thought that they'd have found the photographs, but they, haven't, they hadn't found the photographs. They'd looked for them in Heiberg's archive um, at the Royal Library in Copenhagen. Heiberg has an extensive archive in the Royal Library in Copenhagen, uh, which was deposited there after his death in 1935. And the photographs weren't there. Uh, there's a simple answer to this question, which is that Heiberg, after he'd finished his second critical edition in 1916, like any good liberally-minded scholar, he deposited his photographs in a public library then, not when he died. As soon as he'd finished using them, he left, he left, the, uh, he left the photographs to the University of Library of Copenhagen, and they are now man photographic manuscript 38. It's just that no one had looked in the photo archive. So we looked in the photo archive, and they're still there. Well, they're not anymore. They're, they're, they're now at the Walters on loan. Um, but they're there. And what the hell? If you've got Heiberg's photographs of the manuscript, and you've got Heiberg's transcription of the manuscript, and it was obviously in much better condition then than it is now, why do you need the manuscript? And this is the nightmare. The 
nightmare is that Heidberg got his photograph order wrong. Uh, about a quarter of it wrong. He didn't order photographs of the entire manuscript. He ordered photographs of what he thought was on floating bodies, on the method, and on the stomachia, the, the three texts that he couldn't get anywhere else. And either he got his photographic order wrong, or the photographer took the wrong photographs. There's a kind of Caesar shift in the whole thing. So instead of ending up with lots, of, with, with a complete set of the method, a complete set of all the floating bodies, and a, a complete set of the stomachion, he's got sort of three quarters of the method and a little bit of spiral lines. Uh, you know, two thirds of all floating bodies and a little bit of planes in equilibrium, which you can find elsewhere. And if you look at his transcription in his publications, when he doesn't have photographs, there is no transcription. You know, it's one or two words. You look at the manuscript now, and those pages are just as legible, or as illegible, as any others. So, the manuscript still contains uh, text that has, of Archimedes that has never been transcribed. And Heiberg really, really, really might have been a genius, and he was a genius to read Archimedes out of this. I'm not doubting this for a moment. He didn't have UV or whatever. But he didn't know the manuscript that well. First page of the manuscript is a completely new page of unfloating bodies that we identified last year. Never been read before in the original Greek. This page is another page of unfloating bodies that Heiberg thought was spiral lights. It's actually on the back of a forgery. This is a piece of blue tack. I think someone tried to stick it to a wall. Um, and it's never been it's never been it's never been read before. Uh, remember the Archimedes text is going this way. Heiberg, of course, was working from a bound book. The Archimedes manuscript goes through the gutter. So we're going to dis we're disbinding the book. One of the main problems with disbinding the book, by the way, is that it was rebound in the 1960s using a wood glue. And, and, and the wood glue is harder than the parchment. But well, I'll come to that later. Um, um, another thing about Heiberg's truly wonderful work, another, thing, another limitation of it, is that he was a philologist. He was a lover of text. He wasn't at all interested in the diagrams. The diagrams in his edition are uh, made up from the text by a mathematician called Zoyton, made up from the text. If you read the text, and as a 20th century mathematician, you can re reconstruct the diagrams. That's what they did in the edition. The thing is that mathematicians don't think in, di in, in, in text. They think in diagrams. That's what, that's what they do, if you think about it. And these diagrams, in, in codices, codices, codices A and B didn't have diagrams. So this book is possibly the unique source for the drawings that Archimedes actually drew in the sand in Syracuse, and Heiberg ignored them and just got Zoyton to make it up from the text that he transcribed. The diagrams, the diagrams are still there. This is a UV. This is a UV image of this of, of this page, 
And what you're seeing, Heiberg couldn't see this one anyway, because this is what you're seeing here is this bound leak. This is this is this is the gutter. And this is the and the Archimedes set is still going this way. So we're going to find new text and we're going to be able to study the diagrams for that text that we can still recover. And ever since the exhibition, what we've been trying to do is to put a program together to recover as much of this text as we can. And uh, and um, you know, I, I, you know how it is when 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 suddenly it can, I can't tell you how much of my life has been spent trying to make this work, uh, but altogether too much for a curator of manuscripts of the Walters Art Museum to be dedicating so much of my time to this is 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 really not not responsible. Except that it's Archimedes, so so you kind of have to do it. Um, when it goes well, it can it can go it can, it can be great fun. Uh, let me see. Okay, uh, this is this is this is a um, this is a gutter that we took apart. This is a leaf that we took apart, and uh, you can see the damage here. The Archimedes text is going this way. This is the perfect text on top. The conservator of manuscripts of the Walters, Abigail Font, folds over the tear and mends it. And when she's mended it, uh uh. When she's mended it, that's the before and the after. And then you take, uh oh. an ultraviolet photograph of it to bring out the Archimedes text. The reason that this is a, a fuzzy photograph is, is because it's not a TIFF file. It's not a 17 megabyte file, which is what it was taped, which is what the original was. I've turned it into a JPEG, which is a one megabyte file, so that I can send it down the internet to the professor of mathematics at Stanford, a guy called Reviel Nett, so that he can look at it, and he looks at it, and he circles this circle on Adobe Photoshop, and he sends it back to me, and he says, this is the earliest symbol for a circle he's ever seen in Greek mathematical writing. And then I send it to the internet to the owner, and then I get another $10,000. You see how it works. <laughs> Trouble is, because the book's so damaged, Normally ultraviolet light is normally ultraviolet light is it's great for reading pattern tested texts. And what ultraviolet light does is you is, is, is that it makes the parchment it makes the parchment fluoresce, which means that it makes both texts stand out from from the parchment, enabling you to read the other text more easily. Trouble is that the Archimedes text is often so faint that, that UV won't work. So we've been experimenting with other techniques to, to make it work. And uh, for this, I need to introduce you to um, 
something called multispectral imaging. Uh, does anyone know what Moffat Field is in California? No, okay. I just know this is Moffat Field. Moffat. Yeah. What is it? It's an airplane hangar. Okay, so this is Moffat Field in California. Uh, and it's a hyperspectral image of Moffat Field in, in California. Uh, the way multispectral imaging works is that you take images from... It's normally space imagery. It's satellite imagery of Earth. And you, and you, and you take image of the same place in lots and lots and lots and lots of wave bands. And you stack those wave bands together... So you get a data queue of information. You must imagine this as ones and noughts. And you know, if you want to bring out certain features, then you can slice this data queue to bring out what you want. And the idea is, of course, that you apply this to the Archimedes palimpsest, and you can slice your queue to bring out the Archimedes text. Well, this is, this is the idea. The, this is the idea, and the first problem that we have to deal with is something called registration. And I should explain, by the way, has anyone come across the people who have been doing these Herculaneum scrolls? Does this mean anything to you? Okay, I won't, I won't go there. Okay, the first problem is registration. Um, you've got to line up all the information in this data cube. You've got to line it up absolutely exactly. Now, when you're imaging... When you're, imaging from, when you're imaging Moffat Field from space, that doesn't matter too much. You don't have to line it up quite so exactly. But when you're imaging uh, Greek cursive on a minute level, you've got to get it absolutely right. And we still haven't got it absolutely right. But the results are kind of curious. And then you've got to find out, then you've got to get the right information to the scholars who can read this stuff. You've got to process it in, in the right way. So our first results, I thought, were pretty good. Believe it or not, this is, is this page. Um, it's very hard to believe, but there's a, there's a diagram hidden in here. And you can come as close up as you like to, to this page, and you will not be able to see the diagram there. Um, this, is a, this is a multispectral processed image of that page. It's actually, you know, the same photograph, it's the same ones and noughts, but I'm using part of this part of this as the spectral cube. Um, but, but, but process. There are two problems with it. And the first the first is interesting to me, which is that we have deliberately suppressed the prayer book text on top. And actually the scholars don't want us to suppress the prayer book text on top. They want they're not, they can read through the prayer book text. That's not a problem. And anyone, I'm not used to reading palimpsests, but apparently, you know, you can read through an overtext. That's not the problem. So, so they didn't like us taking away information. And the other is that although it looks like Greek cursive, uh, the registration problem uh, made, it, made, it, made, it, made it difficult to read. So it looks great, but it's not, it's not the result that we really, really wanted. Uh, we're only just getting to the results that we that we really wanted. Uh, here's a really bad page. Um, 
and the Archimedes text is running like this, but you can't really, really see it. Um, you can see it slightly better in UV, but you can read it if I get the right widget, and I got the wrong widget inevitably. You can read it better in this false color image of the Archimedes text running this way. Um, what's really clever of us here is that, and unfortunately for us, the spectral qualities of the Archimedes text and the prayer book text on top are almost identical. And what's worse is that the parchment has been so mold damaged that there's no consistent color to the parchment either. What was really clever of us was A, to solve the registration problem to the extent that the, this is now basically in focus, and B, to separate it out so that we can make all the, we can make a global change that makes all the Archimedes text look like one color, most of the parchment look another, or enough of the parchment look another, and the, and the Eupologion look yet another. And the scholars, the scholars love this. Uh, it, we're not there yet, um, but, but we're getting there. It's a bit of a problem. The owner thinks that the image on the right is rather ugly. Um, I think he'd like us to make a pretty picture. But we, we can work on that. What, more importantly at the moment, what we're working on is making, is making the, our scholar in Stanford, Raviel Metz, who is the most brilliant guy, slightly colorblind. So we're trying to work out. <laughs> yeah, we're trying to work out the best, the best colours for him. Um, so we chose when we choose which pages to image, and I can't tell you what a colossally time-consuming thing this is. We well, we chose we chose a bifolium called one o. It's one o five one ten of the Eucologion. And uh, and we and we and we worked on it. This is this is actually. I'm sorry. I'm not too. I haven't got all the right pickets. This is the same bifolium, but not the same place on the page. Uh, this is a red, green, blue image, a normal image. This is a processed image. And we send them to our scholars, Reviel Nets in Stanford and Natalie Chernetsker in Cambridge, and they send us back JPEGs. Um, uh oh. They sent us back JPEGs. This is, a, this is the first JPEG I got back. It's a UV image of the page. And uh, Nets transcribes what he can see. He writes what he can see using Adobe Photoshop. He writes in what, it, what, it, what he sees. And here, he, he's got a note saying he's got to guess what, what this is. He doesn't know what this is yet. And then he sends it to the images and says, will you please work on this a bit more and process this more? This Q, this is a Q to AQ. This is a question to Abigail Quant, who's the conservator of manuscript of authors, asking if this tear is possibly original. And this is how it all works. It all works in cyberspace. And this is an early crack on this bifolium. And we work on it and we work on it. And eventually, we get to this. And uh, this is the, this is a semi-finished product. We can do better. Um, what you see in green is, is uh, text that can be read. What you can see in red is text that's hypothetical. Now, it looks like there's an awful lot of hypothetical text, and there is, and 
one of the one of the few breaks that's been cut for us is that Archimedean Archimedes is mass. You know, so if you get one plus one equals, you know, you know that the red's going to be two. Uh, and it's also rather formulaic language. So with a very few clues, you can really do rather well. And Reviel Netz is, is, is not primarily a paleographer. He's a historian of Greek mathematics. He understands Archimedes' mind. Uh, so what we need and what we've got is a, a paleographer in Cambridge who's an expert on Greek palimpsest practices who works out what she can actually see in, in, in the book. And they're, they're meeting in Geneva today to fight over <laughs> which bits are red and which bits are green. I'm hoping to get a JK tomorrow where all this just goes green. Um, uh, but that's, but that's, how we, that's how we work on this. And, and, and it's, a, it's, an interesting, it's an interesting thing. Um, I'm, I'm not a mathematician. I can't really uh, even work out tips in this country. But um, <laughs> we do have a publication now in the learned journal Schionis, which has a circulation of about 10, I think. <laughs> a new reading of method, method, of method, that is the method of mechanical theorems, Proposition 14, preliminary evidence from the Archimedes Palimpsest, Part 1. The authors are Reviel Netz in Stanford, Ken Sato in Osaka, and Natalie Chernetska in Cambridge. Um, and, uh, and I'll just read the, read the conclusion. Um, there is a complete transcription of the bifolium, some of it hypothetical. To sum up, then, the new reading from Archimedes' Indivisibles proof does not so much solve the puzzle of the method of mechanical theorems as add to its complexity. We believe that the new reading totally alters the logical structure of the individual Indivisibles proof itself, and that, as a consequence, the overall structure of the method has to be reconsidered. Finally, this should call for some reconsideration of the position of Archimedes in some key areas of the history of mathematics, especially the two related conceptual fields of the calculus of infinity. So I think, to sum up very briefly, that probably our work is important. Um, but nonetheless, you can't believe everything that you read in the papers. Thank you very much. Thank you.